There's a sports metaphor for someone who's been at their craft for a long time. Do they still have their fastball? In other words, can they still do the wonderful work that brought them to prominence in the first place? I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, the early struggles, obstacles overcome, the doubt, and the passion to push forward. I didn't even fake being an unbiased journalist when I first interviewed Russ Teitelman for a profile in 2008. The songs he's produced with James Taylor, George Harrison, Paul Simon, Randy Newman, and so many more have had a powerful impact on my life. And he's become a friend, part of a lunch group I organize at a New York institution, Barney Greengrass. His latest work is a terrific Ricky Lee Jones album of standards called Pieces of Treasure. So yes, Russ Teitelman still has his fastball. Our conversation started with this question. Can anything new be learned about one's work when you've been doing it for more than 50 years? Well, I think there's always stuff to learn when you're doing this. Each project is different. Um, And this one was so personal and so intense between Ricky and I that I guess the skill set came in handy while we were doing it. How about the shared history? Does that play a role? Is there a moment, are there moments during the production of this album where you kind of look at each other like, hey, remember back on that, you know, 40 years ago? Does that play a role in, in not, anything? Not so much. I don't think so. Uh, you know, we were in the moment. And uh, that part of it is always there. There's The history is there. Uh, but nothing specific like that. As you're doing this now, and it's a beautiful record, are there questions that you have for yourself? Can I still do this? Oh, no, I didn't ask that question. Uh, it, it just, it flowed. It just was like the perfect thing. I, I don't know how, it, I don't even know how it happened. I think she, she said, let's make a record of her stuff because she'd been writing songs and I heard some of them and they're fabulous. But but uh, she claims that that I said to her, no, let's make a jazz record. Let's do a standards record. But my memory of it is that she had suggested it, but I think she's right. <laughs> uh, so she said yes to it. And then we started sending each other songs. And there were all these coincidences during that process. I think the first song I sent her was It Never Entered My Mind, the Rogers and Hart song that I love so much. And she said she wanted to do Just In Time. I said, oh, that's a great idea. And I sent her uh, all the way. And and she said, she said I don't think you're going to like this idea, but wh- what about doing uh, It's All In The Game? I said, of course we're doing all in the game. Now, I've seen in her interview, she says, well, I, I, he didn't like that idea, but she's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, Musicians. Yeah. You know, as soon as we got going, we had both of us had lists like this long 
for the podcast listening audience right now, I will say that uh, you've referenced that the list was quite long. Oh, it yes. It was your hands. Yes. Yeah, it was long. And so, and a lot of them were the same. Each of us had the same ideas. There were a couple of things, like she didn't know, here's that rainy day. She didn't really know that song. Or she didn't know, you know, she didn't know it to sing it. And and but then she said yes to it, you know, and so some of them are more obscure. Uh, you know, there will never be another you. Like not, not a lot of people do it. Pizzarelli does it. Right. You know. <laughs> and uh you say that the project was personal, very personal. How so? There are very few singers who manage to get to this place inside of them that that's so emotional it's it's a rare thing cindy lopper has it you know and there's some of the old greats that we know that have it billy holiday of course and you know blossom deary has it and abby lincoln has it and betty carter has it i am well aware of her capabilities and and the thing that makes her who she is uh from the from the very day i first heard her demo when i was in england working you know company is on this demo just piano and voice and i thought what is this you know like i've never heard a singer like this i called lenny warwick or lenny had sent me the cassette I was making a George Harrison record. Lenny called me. He said, there's this girl, there's this buzz on this girl in Los Angeles, and it's something you and I should do, and I'm sending you a cassette. So he sends me the cassette. I listen to the thing. Chucky's in Love was on it, Easy Money, Young Blood, uh, Weasel and the White Boys, Cool, and Company, and a couple of others. And when I heard Company, I just, I, I was overwhelmed with emotion because of this performance. And the song, is an extraordinarily beautiful song and uh, completely unusual. There's nothing else like that song. And so, you know, I called Lenny and I said, this girl is as good a singer as Roberta Flack. So Ricky later, she talks about it now. She said, when I said that, she understood that I understood her. Mm. You know, she said, because Roberta Flack maybe a trained singer but the way she sings is so simple and that and her instrument is so beautiful and uh, so she says of it she says yeah she she barely uses any vibrato and and it's very clear and simple and emotional and so i guess what I, what I, what i'm getting at i think is that uh because of my history with her and my understanding of who she is as an artist and what she can do, that this collaboration worked so well. When I first met you and first interviewed you, I believe in 2008, you told me that you like recordings with a lot of space. I'm curious if you can, we can flesh that out. What, what does that mean? It's self-evident, I think, in the, in the work that I do, in the records that I've made, that there might be a lot going on but everything has its place. There's never just a bunch of stuff keep the thing going. You know, if there's a groove, it'll come from the bass and the drums and maybe the piano, like the Randy Newman stuff, you know, rednecks and 
and uh, you can leave your hat on. It's just really drums, bass, and piano. But the but the groove is so incredible. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, you know your personal taste, mm. uh, how you how you see it. And you know, there's usually a lot of air in the track. To me, it's just self evident, and when you listen to it, what that means. I'm always intrigued by places that were uh, kind of iconic places in terms of music. Of course, Liverpool in the early 60s, the Jersey Shore in the early 70s. And it seems to me that you were there at three of them. You were there in California in the early 60s uh, around Phil Spector and Brian Wilson. You then come to New York and you're around the Brill Building people or, or, or what we associate with the Brill Building sound, Man and Weil and Goffin and King. And then you're back in California in the late 60s and early 70s as the whole singer-songwriter genre is really uh, taking off. And, and so it's, it's, it's almost like a Zelig-like quality, although you contribute to all of those. And I'm fascinated by that. When we live our lives, and especially as a young man, are you just doing it? Or is there some notion during those periods of, well, something special is going on here? I think the uh, former is, is true. It's just, we were just in it, just doing it. I, I don't know if I, if I stopped to go, I'm writing with Jerry Goffin and I'm making records with Jerry Goffin and Carol King and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil in 1963 and 64. If I stopped to think about it, I might have just, you know, my head would have exploded. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I look back on it, I think, Jesus Christ, you know, first of all, like, what did they see in me? And and uh, it's mind boggling looking back at it. You know, and the, and really, uh, my beginnings uh, of doing anything with Phil Spector, it has the same quality to it. You know, I mean, I learned how to do this because I was around Phil. I was in the studio when we were making pa the Paris Sisters records and demos that he made, and so I saw how it was done. I was in Gold Star. You know, I I could play guitar well enough to do you know, play rhythm guitar on the Paris Sisters records. And so I'm sitting in the studio next to Barney Kessel and Howard Roberts. And, you know, like, what? That's your university. <laughs> yeah, that was my, yeah, that and, and KGFJ radio. Yeah, the radio is always a part of this. What, what? Big part of it. Tell, tell us, you know, is that sitting at home, listening to the radio uh, in your room, that type of thing, in the car? Yeah. And, was that the big station for you, KGIF? Well, KGFJ was the R&B station. Oh, okay. So late at night, you know, there was a there was a DJ named Hunter Hancock. Hunter Hancock and Margie, this woman who was was his foil, you know, and she was the wife of Tony Williams of the Platters. <laughs> so it's like R&B royalty and Hunter Hancock was a white guy. And but he that was that was his thing, rhythm and blues stuff. So I'd listen to that. And then on Sunday, it was gospel music, you know, right, you know, from the church. Right. So I knew all the prayers. Nice. <laughs> Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. So that's why uh, the Titlemans came to this country, so that you could know those prayers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and and be open to there's a big old world out there and yeah. a big old world of music too. So growing up, let's say uh high school 
Is there a notion of, no, this is going to be it. Music's going to be what I do. Or was there ever kind of a plan B of like, uh, I know the music business can be, shall we say, unwieldy. Maybe I'll try this other thing as well. No, there was never that alternative. Never. There was never that. I mean, I think from the time I was two or three and I heard Lead Belly that I knew that I would be have something to do with music. You know, my older sister and her friends were listening to all the doo-wop records. Well, that's magic. That stuff, that's that's it. You know, there, there's no choice. Why Do Fools Fall in Love and Desiree by the Charts was a little later. You know, G by the Crows and, and Shaboom by the Chords. You know, then there were the white versions of those records, which were dreadful. But, <laughs> but you know, there was that music. That was it. That was it. Is there a conversation at first with your mom and dad and then after your dad dies with your mom as you're a teenager of, no, mom, this is this is what I'm going to do? There was never even a discussion about it. And uh, apropos of that, my dad died. He was 51 years old and he uh, worked in the shipyards in Long Beach during World War II, you know, do, doing building ships. And so that was asbestos. So that's what got it. Apropos of this record with Ricky Lee, we did September song. Both of us had that song on our list. And I remember after my father died, my mother had the Columbia 78 Sinatra record of September song that she played over and over again in 1956. Yeah. Winds up on this record. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. Yeah. From all I know and what you said, you love the music right from the get-go, mm -hmm. but does the, the joy of the music and being around it and then being in it um, after your dad dies, does it take it on even a greater role because uh, you've seen kind of the worst terrible pain, but this is joyful. And how could you not want to be part of this? Yeah. Does it take on a greater meaning? Yeah. And I think... You know, uh, after he died, uh, you know, I, I suppose I was looking for a father figure, and the father figure turns out to be Phil Spector. You know, I followed him around like a puppy dog. You know, I just, that was it. You have a long and distinguished career in music. How much does Paul Winfield play a role in that? You were in college with him? So... You know, I took acting lessons from uh, Justin Smith in Hollywood. He was he's a great acting teacher. Um and uh and when I went to LACC, I thought, well, I'll you know, I'll give it a shot. I'll take a look at it, you know. And I get in there and so, you know, you had to you had to do scenes. There were talented people in that and Paul Winfield was one of them. He, he did a scene from the Emperor Jones, and he was sitting there, and this laugh came out of him that was so real and so, you know, I, I, I was sitting in the audience, and I went, you know, if I live to be 150, I'll never be able to do that. So I, 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 something in me said, I should just stick with what I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey. For those illuminating moments, we, you know, we're fortunate in life. We get those illuminating moments. Yeah. And he so, goes on to be the star of Sounder, 
Right. And played Martin Luther King on the on the, you know, he was a great actor. Yeah. A sweet person. So as you get rolling in California, um, you're you're a performer also. And you're in the Shindig band. You know, <laughs> yeah, big... well, I was in New York and I had made these records that, you know, Jerry Goffin and I wrote this song called uh, I Never Dreamed. And we uh, and we it was for the cookies and we produced it. And Carol King was the arranger. <laughs> there is a God. Yeah. So. Uh, so and and that record to this day, I, I, I think, well, I really haven't made a better record than that. And, and I was the composer as well. You know, Goffin wrote the lyrics. So we made this record and it did absolutely nothing. I think the label Dimension Records was kind of shutting down then. So nothing was done about this record. And I thought to myself, you know, I can't do better than this. Like, what do I do now? Some of my contemporaries consider that to be one of the greatest records made back in that period around the Spectre time. Around that time, I got a call from my guitar teacher mentor, Ray Pullman, who was one of the Wrecking Crew guys. And Ray got the job as musical director of the show, Shinding. And he called me. I was in New Jersey in an apartment. And he said, come home, we're doing television. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, there's this show, come home. So I got on a plane and I went back and I was on that show for almost a year, I think. Uh, 64, 65. Right. Yeah. And at that moment, are, are there internal questions of, wait, should I be a performer? Should I be a producer? Or was it always clear to you? Well, I didn't. I didn't consider myself a performer. I was a. I was a guitar player. I played on sessions, and you know, I was still a songwriter. And I was still, you know, had my had my toe in the water. And uh, but mainly, you know, I spent a year being a rhythm the rhythm guitar player on Shindig, and everybody came through on that show. Everybody was on that show. What a what a blessing that was. And Leon Russell was in the band and Billy Preston and Larry Nectel and Richie Frost was the drummer who played drums on all the Ricky Nelson records. You know, these great musicians, Jim Horn, you know, that I became very close friends with Jim and with all those guys. And then I was off the show. I guess they, you know, they gave other people a shot at, at playing. I had become very good friends with Jack Nitchie. So he and I were like this. And so if he was doing any records, I'd play guitar on him. I'm, I'm on expecting to fly playing the 12 string guitar, you know, Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield. So, you know, stuff like that. So anything that Jack did, I was part of. I was like his assistant, you know, his, his, his T boy. So he gets the gig of doing the score to performance the Mick Jagger movie. This is 1969, I think, 68, 69, yeah. when the actual recording was. It may have been 68. The score is amazing. He was so brilliant, Nietzsche. Um, but anyway, you know, one day he calls me up. He says, uh, come over. We have to write a song for this movie. So I went over to his house. In about a half an hour, we wrote this song, Gone Dead Train. And Randy Newman was the conductor on that score. So we were in there for a couple of weeks doing this. We go in. 
We cut it live. Two takes. Me, Rhythm, Cooter, Gene Parsons on drums, uh, Jerry Chef on bass. And I think that was it. The, I, you know, it was a small band, all cut live. Randy singing live. You know, you see these things of, oh, that's your greatest rock and roll performance. <laughs> you know? um, and then there was a, there's a song called Memo from Turner on there that Jagger sings. And Donald Camel was the co-director on that film. And he was there for every moment of the making of the score. And there was a version of the track that Traffic had done. And Camel didn't like it that much. So he said to us, like, will you guys do it? You know, so we had Jagger's voice and a click. And we listened to the traffic thing, which was pretty good, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and we took elements from it, you know, kind of. And just came up with our own version of it. And Cooter's playing this insanely great slide part. It's one of the great performances of, of his, of anybody, playing a slide guitar on a rock and roll record. And uh, the drummer, uh, the bass player was Bobby West on that. And Randy played the B3 organ. And same thing, like we just came up with an arrangement on the floor. Two takes, that was it. At that time, in those years... And this is before you, you know, starting to record with Randy Newman and with James Taylor, and then later on Stevie Winwood and Eric Clapton. You're a young man. You're in California. Is the feeling of hey, I'm doing it. It's it's happening. Or is there any level of doubt of oh, is this going to work out? You know, one thing led to another. That's an interesting question. The, that kind of awareness I didn't have, um, but. You know, from from the work on performance, that's when I became friendly with Randy. We'd met before, and I'd been around. He wrote a song for uh, Pursuit of Happiness called Let It Shine, I think. Grusin did the score. And so Randy performed the song. It was, you know, the song in the movie. And uh, so I was on that session. I played guitar. And so then we started being friends and I just started hanging at his house and, and Lenny Warnker was, was a very, very dear friend of mine. And, and he had gone from metric music from Mo Austin hired him to run the A&R department at Warner brothers records. So Jack Nitsche and I used to go to hang at Lenny's office. We, we used to go to metric and hang with him. When he went to Warner's, we went there and, and Lenny who's, who's, you know, one of the great, a&R people that ever lived and one of the great producers I don't know if people understand he made all of the great uh, Gordon Lightfoot records producer Maria Muldar, Midnight at the Oasis Arlo Guthrie records you know really really great stuff and he signed Randy and he signed Cooter and he signed Van Dyke Parks so there's this community of these oddball geniuses all in this one place. And the records are not selling, but he knew, you know, stick with this stuff because they're great. So I guess after, after the performance thing and, and me hanging around there, Lenny asked me to go with him to New York and record Randy live at the bitter end. This is like 1970. So, he said, well, you know, 
go go in the studio and make this record, you know, and we'll be co-producers. So I put it together and did all the all the work, and I checked with Lenny, and he'd come in every now and then and check. But Randy had two brilliant records before that one that got the best reviews of any records that ever existed, and they sold nothing, little tiny bits, you know. Then we made this live record, and all of a sudden, it you know, I think it's because of the live performance. He was singing great, playing great. The audience is with him the whole time. They laugh at the jokes. There's dead silence at the most beautiful parts. And so I think it showed people who he was and, you know, that it was okay to laugh at these things and that, you know, and these beautiful songs, you know, incredibly great, you know, what a composer. We got back to LA. I put the record together and and mixed it and and um and it sold the, you know they had a great campaign ad campaign it was fantastic and it actually sold records it got like a lot of attention and then Lenny said well come on let's start we'll you know you'll you'll work with 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 me on, on Randy's stuff and the next thing we did was sail away and you're off and running and often running, and and he kept asking me to take a job there as an A and R person. I kept saying no, like I don't want a job. I was like a hippie. He said I don't want a job, and finally he just sat me down and he said, "Look, come on, you're gonna you're gonna do this." You've been connected to so many wonderful songs and produced so many wonderful songs. Some snapshot thoughts on a couple of them that I'd like to throw at you, and we'll start with Randy Newman and the record Marie. Ah, Marie. Well, that was, you know, that was the process. Like Lenny would get the call first, I think. Come over, I have something. He'd go over there and be rednecks, short people, you know, play it on the piano. I don't remember if both of us went over there for that one. He was working on a on what would have been a, like a Southern rock opera called Johnny Cutler's Birthday. And the, so there was a character, a narrative that ran through the whole thing, but it, it didn't really work, all of it. But Marie was one of the songs. Rednecks, one of the songs. I get the phone call, come over, there's something. I go over there, he plays me this song, I start crying. It's such a beautiful song. And and he had Roland, the other song, Roland. I don't know if he had anything else yet. I don't remember. So Lenny and I were going, well, you know, write an arrangement you know let's get going we'll record and he got he was blocked he couldn't do it so Lenny said well let's call Nick DeCaro and Nick can write the string arrangement for these two songs and that's what we did and of course Randy was there we went on to we recorded at the at the sound stage at Warner's uh, at Warner Brothers Pictures those two songs and of course Randy was there Emil Newman conducted I believe you know, Randy made little suggestions, corrections, things like that. So, but it's Nick DeCaro's arrangement fundamentally. And once we cut those two things, then he started going. Then he started writing and, you know, we cut a couple of things and it started going. Then we'd have to wait for him to write more songs. From James Taylor, and there are numerous songs we could choose uh, a junkie's lament. Ah, 
I love that song. I, you know, when when we were preparing for that record, uh, uh, I flew to Massachusetts to go visit him. Martha, I guess he was in Martha's Vineyard then. Yeah. And so, you know, we went into the barn and he played me all these songs that he had. Shower the People, for instance, and Money Machine and, you know, all these great songs. And there was Junkie's Lament. When I heard that song, I thought, this is so, you know, autobiographical. It's so raw and such a beautiful song. I guess it was his idea to get Artie Garfunkel to sing on that thing. But we made a beautiful track. The song is so emotional. And the lyrics, Ricky's been kicking the gong. A junkie sick, a monkey strong, that's what's wrong. Woo. Revealing stuff and, and a kind of brave song to write. But because of James Taylor, there's, it's so gentle and beautiful and heartbreaking. Your name is not so connected with Paul Simon, and yet you produced, I think, one of his great albums, an underrated album, Hearts and Bones, with one spectacular song after another. Yeah. Uh, let's choose one, Train in the Distance. Now, was that the only time that you had worked with Paul Simon? It was the first time I worked with him. Train in the Distance. The, we started working on it. Lenny and I were... Uh, going to co-produce that album and the first things we did we did in los angeles i was still living there then in la and paul came and we had chuck rainey and steve gadd and greg phil and gaines and um uh, uh dean parks i believe and paul of course so he had three songs he had the late great johnny ace song about the moon and train in the distance so we cut those three things got the tracks and maybe his vocal you probably it's hard for me to remember now but you probably redid a lot of the vocal stuff and then we took a break and paul went back to new york and during that during that break lenny became president of warner brothers records so it kind of took him out of the running for finishing the record because it was going to be done in New York. So I went. Paul had to write. I don't remember how long it was between the recording of those first three and the beginning of the next stuff, but I went to New York and stayed about two and a half months. And we cut Hearts and Bones, and he had uh, Think Too Much, One and Two, and... Uh, allergies and i don't know what else you know renee and georgette mcgree uh, renee you know maybe one of the greatest songs he ever wrote in his life renee and georgette mcgree with their dog after the war what a beautiful song he's such a genius that he wrote a song that's like a mcgree painting merging two opposing or opposite or uh, contradictory elements into one thing. So he has this beautiful melody and the subject of Magritte, he chose doo-wop music mm -hmm. to be the, the mysterious thing that, you know, he says, the deep uh, forbidden music they were longing for 
Renee and Georgette Magritte. They were longing for the, you know, the five satins and the penguins and the orioles and, you know, that this this thing that they they may never, you know, that they never heard that music, Magritte. But they're, I always thought of it as they're longing for a simplicity or a time, much like it's 15 years after he wrote Mrs. Robinson, or around 15 years, and the whole notion of where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio. It's not specifically about Joe DiMaggio. It's everybody interprets a song their own way from their own truth. That notion of maybe for him at that time, focusing on the doo-wop of his youth, of your youth, that was so beloved at that particular point. Yeah, like a, a plot device right? to use that to, you know, they open the drawer and what do they find? Doo-wop music, you know, which is a juxtaposition that's so completely out there. Right. Um, but uh, you may have a point in that... Uh, you know, there's a beauty to that music that's unrivaled. You know, it's mysterious and beautiful. And he uses it as a device in the song to reveal something that no one, you know, it just, that's his genius. For so many years, you are in the studio producing musicians who are writing about their lives, writing about experiences, very personal ones. Junkie's Lament is just one example, yeah. but perhaps there's uh, no better example or no more poignant example than Tears in Heaven with Eric mm. Clapton. Yeah. And at that point, as we've discussed previously, uh, you, your job is to make the best record. And so did you find that difficult to not kind of get involved shall we say in the emotions of the moment this song about his son who had died and just kind of stay focused on let's 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 focus on making the best record here for that's, you that, that's exactly what we did you know you had to put it aside easier said than done no it was not difficult through all these years, where do you see your role in terms of the suggestion or the gentle, uh, sh the shoulder to, to lean on? Or yeah. is it all of that? Well, it is all of that. That, that's, uh, that. That's just part of the job description in a way. You know, you're, you're an editor, you're a confidant, you're a listener, you're also a creative force in there like on the ricky lee record that we just made you know i would just get out of her way when she was doing something creative you know I, I actually i think we had to learn we had to learn in a way you know she'd start something and i i think i i went you know what if you she said well just wait let me let me do this first and then you know and then oh i went oh okay <laughs> get out of the way you know and then and then you can edit then you can make suggestions but while the process is going someone like her you know you have to you have to just trust it and and go with it i had this fun experience recently that i told you about being in a supermarket in new york and hearing a song that you wrote that was a big hit for the hollies well yes i will which is a terrific song i'm curious if you go into places 
and all of a sudden the song that you produced you'll hear i got to imagine it's happened more than once yes it's and, happened it's happened yeah. often. <laughs> uh does that ever get old uh you know uh, it, no it kind of doesn't the, the ones that i hear now that seem to have had the longest life are ain't nobody shotgun rufus mm -hmm. Iron love still gets played you know there it's just part of the part of the backdrop now those are emotional records too ain't nobody the 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 vocal the way the way the thing is built starts out real quietly and then by the end it's like like an orgasm you know <laughs> her her she's just uh, uh, going and she's on the end of higher love too. You know, she does this stuff that it's like a gospel record at the end, you know? Um, and so when you're in a, in a supermarket and you hear it, is it just pure joy or do you stop and say, Oh, that was interesting. Oh, that's, Oh, are you, are you still producing even though the record's been out, you know, for 40 oh, years? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's just kind of fun to hear it. Shower the people's another one that you hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's some piece of work <laughs> and how sweet it is also you keep hearing that one yeah. yeah those early experiences we talked about growing up in the home where you hear a lot of music including lead belly from an early age yeah. and seeing phil specter you know rehearse in your living room because of a family connection and then all the people that you're hanging out with uh early on in california is there a way you can point to those early experiences and say this is the effect those early experiences continue to have on the work that I'm doing today. Because this is not all in the past. You've made a really good record with Ricky Lee Jones. And you still, I'll answer the question, you still do have your fastball. Uh, can you say, oh, those early experiences, they affected how I do my work now? I don't think about it. I, I certainly don't think about it when I'm working. It just is, it's the bedrock of you know i didn't go to school to learn this you know i went to the university of phil specter ray pullman los angeles radio every doo-wop record that's that's ingrained in my dna to this day i can hear those records i get the same feeling maybe and and desiree by the charts and and uh, and why do fools fall in love one of the greatest records ever made and and so many of them down the aisle of love by the quintones and and i don't know you know it just goes on and on my true story wow there's an innocence about it there's also a sophistication like that record desiree by the charts it's like bach for kids there are all these line interweaving lines that keep going, you know, like counterpoint things, you know, in, in two and three part inventions. It gets you. It it it's subconscious. It gets you. And thank goodness for your folks who filled a house with music. Yeah. Thank goodness to all of our folks who filled houses with music. Really, I'll tell you, man, it's the truth. And Russ, my favorite thing in talking to you is one of my favorite things is you've lost none of the passion. Just to see you talk about a song, be it from yesterday or 60 years ago, is, is, and to hear you talk about a song is really a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, you know, 
when I was writing, I, I still write a little bit, but you know, like that song, Yes, I Will. I think I told you the story back in the day that uh, Jerry Goffin and Carol King and I were going to go see Hard Day's Night. And for some reason, Carol changed her mind. So we went back to home and Jerry and I went to see the movie. And I was living in an apartment in East Orange, New Jersey with, with, with uh, Earl Jean and her sister Darlene, who was my girlfriend at the time, and, and Jeannie's son, uh, Grandy. We went back to that apartment and there was a spinet piano. And I went right to the piano and wrote that melody. It just came out, you know, da, 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 da. And, but it was written in the style of uh, If I Felt. It's kind of sweet little thing. Mm -hmm. And then Carol King made the demo with rock and roll guitar stuff. And the Hollies copied her version of that song, which I think is what made it a hit. That's awesome. Russ, it's always a pleasure. See you at Barney Greengrass soon. You name it. Russ Teitelman. His latest work? He's the producer of a really good new Ricky Lee Jones album of standards, Pieces of Treasure. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.